The Jewish views on the Haifa fires. Expat Rona Hart gives us an eyewitness account of what residents went through. The Glass Wall. Author Sue Uniman tells us how her book helps to empower women in the workplace. And we talk to the winner of this year's Jewish News and Mitzvah Day Community Hero Award. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish News this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. In Israel, the series of fires in the northern city of Haifa led to thousands of people being ordered to leave their homes in at least eight neighborhoods. Hundreds of military reservists were called up to battle the spreading flames. At least 17 people were taken to hospital for treatment for smoke inhalation. It's been reported that the Jewish Agency for Israel will provide immediate financial assistance to hundreds of families whose homes were damaged by any of the fires that swept the country. Israel's finance minister approved an allocation of just over £500 per person. In Germany, a federal court has upheld a conviction against the former SS guard Oskar Gröning, who was stationed at Auschwitz. Gröning, who's now 95, was convicted in July 2015 of being an accessory to the murder of 300,000 Jews and given a four-year prison sentence. He'd always claimed he simply oversaw the collection of prisoners' belongings in the death camp. The decision sets an important precedent for prosecutors to pursue others who allegedly served in concentration camps. A kosher abattoir in Hackney, East London, has been targeted by a militant vegan protest group. The Cadassia abattoir was attacked early in November, but initially that protest was peaceful. Later, the activists returned and daubed walls with Jewish symbols and the words kosher holocaust. They also verbally abused staff. Shakita UK director Shimon Cohen said they were nothing more than a bunch of anti-Semitic vandals who will end up being arrested. A cafe in North London has been criticised for selling a smoothie with a swastika drawn on the bottle's label. Called the Nutsy, the drink was being sold at the Nincom Soup Cafe. A Holocaust survivor reported it to the Campaign Against Anti-Semitism. An apology was then posted online and the bottles were immediately removed. And finally, a leading Egyptian actor has revealed that he is in fact Jewish. Karim Kesem, who's 30, told an Egyptian talk show host that his mother was Jewish and that growing up he celebrated Muslim and Christian holidays as well as Jewish ones. Mr Kesem, who's had prominent roles in Egyptian films, was careful to point out that his Jewish ancestors weren't Zionists. The news this week, Andrew's got the sport. Thank you, Viv. Hapa El Beersheba will travel to Southampton on the 8th of December in a winner-takes-all match to determine which side qualifies for the last 32 of the Europa League. The Israeli champions fought back from 2-0 down to beat Inter Milan 3-2 and will travel to St Mary's knowing either a win or score draw will see them qualify. Closer to home, Camden Park claimed one of the results of the season in the Maccabi League as the side who sit bottom of the Premier Division, having lost all their six league games, beat leaders Redbridge, who had won all their seven games. And finally, Israel have pulled out of hosting the 2017 Youth World Championships, as they were unable to secure adequate funding. The tournament was due to take place in Akko in July. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest from the world of Jewish sport at www.jewishnews.co.uk. 
Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this edition of The Jewish Views. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look at your copy of The Jewish News for this week. I'm Phil Dave. Joining me to go through the paper is news editor Justin Cohen and editor Richard Ferrer. Welcome to you both. Now, the front page this week has got two stories on it. One is about our main story, which is the Haifa fires, but also about your annual conference. Where do you want to start, Richard? Well, should we start with the fires, which isn't a new story, obviously. We've been watching it for days. This week, the fires were finally brought under control and stories of heroism and bravery started to emerge as Israel started to put the pieces back together and the recovery operation began. We've been speaking to Brits out in Israel who have been revealing their ordeals. We've spoken to people that have moved out to towns in and around Haifa, Modin, Zichron, Yaakov, places in the north of the country that have been literally devastated. People have lost their homes, their livelihoods, their personal possessions. There's an emotional image on our front page of couple that moved from the UK to Israel whose wedding album was charred so it gives you a sense of the personal properties that have been lost but we've also been looking at if if you can call it positives that have come out of the horrors you often see the best of people in in bad situations and people have rallied round to help the UK charities have been coming to Israel's aid the Palestinian Authority sent 41 fire support personnel, eight trucks. So there's been some good news come out of the the bad and, and luckily property has been lost, but luckily no lives have been lost. Somehow makes it all the more frustrating though, Justin, doesn't it, that something like this has to happen before the PA starts working with Israel and not necessarily against it, which of course we see plenty of examples of. Yeah, I, I think countries' relations with Israel have also come to the aid, and I think the UK also was involved uh, to some extent in, in the response. But yeah, uh, we've seen this a number of times before with support for, for, for the PA, and obviously Israel is known as a country that, even with the countries that it doesn't have diplomatic relations with, it will extend a helping hand whenever there's a natural disaster or whenever there's a, a terrible happening. And, and, and yes, people here have, have, have been able to, to return that favour, and there was a call, I believe, between Netanyahu and Abbas, in which Netanyahu was able to thank him. So, yeah, it was, it, it was good to see. Yeah, in adversity, as I said, it brings out the best in people. There were reports of Jews housing Arabs, Arabs housing Jews, and the Christian communities also coming together. Everybody hopefully trying to overcome this this appalling natural tragedy. There were also obviously reports of a darker side in terms of arson and fires being started deliberately. But generally speaking, as long as the damage can be repaired, hopefully this could show the way forward in terms of how Israeli society might be able to move in the years and months to come. We'll find out more about that later when we get our eyewitness account from Rona Hart, who is an expat who lives in Haifa. She'll be appearing on this programme later on. The other story on the front page, as I mentioned, is that of the annual conference that you and BICOM host. So how did it go this year? Yeah, it was another great success, I think. We're just assessing the impact and assessing the people that came and speaking to our supporters. But yeah, the, the response has been really good. We had about 250 people on Wednesday in Parliament, opinion formers. Uh, we had about 15 different uh, embassies represented around London. We had uh, journalists from at least 10 different outlets, including the BBC, Newsnight, Al Jazeera, 
and Daily Telegraph have also covered the conference. So we, we hope to have, have reached the opinion-forming sections of the community, as well as members of the Jewish community, uh, leaders of the Jewish community were also present. We had a sterling lineup, including the Home Secretary Amber Rudd, the Middle East Minister Tobias Elwood. We had Isaac Herzog, leader of the opposition in Israel, appearing by, via video link from the Knesset before hot-footing it to, to London himself. Unfortunately, we, we lost the actual physical presence of both Herzog and Michael Oren, the public defence minister, because of a vote that was due to happen in the Knesset that had been moved and then was moved again, so it didn't actually take place again. But yeah, we had people from across academia, both in the UK and Israel. We also had the former Middle East peace envoy, Dennis Ross, who's worked for a number of US presidents, so he was able to give his take on the Trump presidency. And I think that you're being very modest because you've been coordinating an awful lot of this over the past six months or so, Justin. So it's, it's apparently with huge thanks to you that it even happened. Been pretty hectic, I have to say. <laughs> uh, feeling a little tired at this point, but we 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 were supported by by the Bicom team. Several members of the staff there. Uh, they they got a lot of good journalistic names to the conference. We also had support of the Anglo-Israel Association. But yes, it, it was a big team effort. It wasn't without its hiccups, though. There was no, a, there was no. a few few things that obviously could have gone better on the day. I, I'm, I'd like to uh, say thank you very much to the esteemed Foreign Shadow Secretary, Emily Thornbury, for a, for a start, who unfortunately couldn't make it. She was in Havana at the time, um, mourning the death of uh, a certain socialist dictator. So she wasn't able to make her first major policy speech on Israel and the Palestinians. Hopefully she might be able to join us at another event. Well, here's hoping. Now, you mentioned Amber Rudd. Just before we do, perhaps that you could just give us a quick definition, Richard. For those of us who might have been asleep or not really paying much attention to what the conference is actually about, what was the aim for it? What was the idea behind putting this conference together? It's about setting an agenda for UK-Israel policy for the next 12 months, figuring out a common path, ways that the two countries can work together for the benefit of each, and bringing together policymakers, opinion formers, MPs, the movers and shakers in Westminster and in the media that can hopefully work together, connect and work in a, in a direction, as I said, that's mutually beneficial to both countries. Well, as we've established, Amber Rudd, the Home Secretary, was there. What did she have to say for herself? Amber Rudd was the uh, the hot ticket, you could say. I mean, it was a pretty packed room all day. But when Amber Rudd kicked off, there wasn't a spare seat. It was basically standing room only. Two things stood out for me. And first one being the fact that post Joe Cox, she was warning that white supremacists and the far right wing are becoming increasingly sophisticated in their operational methods, particularly online. In recent times, we've seen how terrorist groups have been able to exploit social media and how their use of the internet has enabled them to recruit and radicalize individuals and to coordinate, plan and carry out dangerous attacks. As the threat from terrorism continues to adapt and change, so must our approach to it as well. So possibly worrying times, but what did she say to try and maybe alleviate some of the worries that that could have caused? She reassuringly spoke once more about the government's pledge to spend £13.4 million protecting the Jewish community. We are providing £13.4 million for guarding all Jewish state free and independent schools, colleges and nurseries and at synagogues and to support the continuing efforts of the police to provide security and reassurance for the Jewish community. We take the security of the Jewish community seriously and we will continue to put in place the strongest possible measures to ensure the safety of this community and all other communities too. 
Here's hoping that that's something to encourage us and not to maybe get too concerned over the possible rise of the far right. Well, there is some other news, unbelievably enough, in the paper. I mean, I know that we've only spoken about the front page for the last hour of many minutes, but if we dig within there, one of the other stories that came out of this week that certainly caught my eye was about Holocaust ice dancers. And I think that's the headline that you've gone with for this. What was this about? A Russian ice dancing pair on the Russian equivalent of is it Dancing on Ice? Yes, the Dancing on Ice program. Yeah, yeah that we had on telly on ITV a few years ago. So they dressed up in the um, stripy pajamas of the Holocaust camp inmates and uh, replete with yellow stars, and they performed what can only be referred to as a Holocaust dance. Very difficult one, this to get your head round. Obviously, my initial reaction was one of shock and horror. However. And I think there is a however here. I did watch the whole thing. And number one, if you're going to do a, a dance tribute to something as as horrific as this, ice dance is a very graceful, beautiful art. So in terms of the genre that they've chosen, it's actually quite a beautiful, respectful, evocative way of doing it. And secondly, where do you draw the line in terms of artistic impressions and artistic monuments to the darkest time ever in, 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 in human suffering? Life is Beautiful, which was basically a comedy about the the Holocaust, you know, comedy and Holocaust in the same sentence, imagine that, was for me one of the greatest ever films. Anyone who hasn't seen it, please, please do. It's an extraordinary accomplishment. So I think as, as long as their intentions are sincere and respectful and anything they're trying to do should be seen as a testament to the suffering and in memory of those who suffered, then perhaps the art form should come second to to that. So if their motives are true, and I'm not sure if they are, but there was certainly nothing offensive in what they were doing. It was just a beautiful dance. Then as I said, as long as their motivations are are honest and sincere, then I I think that it it should be seen as a tribute. The question is though, is it a tribute or is it leave a bad taste in the mouth? I guess that's for everyone to decide. But that, unfortunately, is where we have to leave it for a look at the paper for this week. Thank you both very much indeed. Don't forget that you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London or read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. As you've already heard, a series of fires in the Israeli city of Haifa led to thousands of people being ordered to leave their homes in at least eight neighbourhoods this week. Reports suggest it was a combination of both wildfires and arson attacks, not helped by strong winds that fanned the flames. Rona Hart is an expat who lives in Haifa, and I've been speaking to her to get an eyewitness account of what's been happening over the past few days. I started by asking Rona to set the scene of what Haifa is like at the moment. I think life is returning to normal, if you can call anything here normal. There are people who are not yet back in their homes. I mean, I understand that nearly 2,000 homes were quite badly damaged by the fire, and over 500 of them are uninhabitable. I know some friends and neighbours of mine across the road didn't have water for several days after their flat was partially burned. I saw from the outside that the shutters had melted, you know, the plastic trisim or shutters. Yes, which are all over the place in Israel, of course, because of the shade and the heat and everything. Yes, yes. I think there are quite a lot of people, and some people perhaps will never be able to go back to their homes. You know, their, their homes were destroyed. But for the vast majority of people, yes, they've gone back home and 
life is returning to normal. Can you just take us back to the moment when the fires started or when you first heard about them? I assume it was a gradual thing. They weren't all going off at the same time they were just sort of more one by one and it was gradually spreading although we'll get on to that in a minute because there is a bit of confusion as to how the fires started and all of that over here but as far as when you first heard about the fire what was it like can you just describe sort of your emotion because i imagine you must have been terrified no i wasn't terrified i was a bit surprised i had a phone call i was sitting here as i am now in this room opposite the computer and the cousin who lives down the road phoned me and said you know, there's a fire. And the smoke was blowing in her direction because of the wind. And she picked it up before I did. I looked out of the window, which faces onto a main boulevard, Abahushi Boulevard. And I noticed there were more people in the streets than usual, but I didn't see anything of a fire. So of course I went outside and our building, our, our block of flats is between two roads, which are almost parallel. And the back entrance leads onto Einstein Street. And there, there were fires there. As I went out of the back and looked around, I could see a huge column of smoke and firemen. And we had it on our doorstep, less than about 100 metres away. What point were people evacuated? Was it the fire brigade that started coming around and telling people that they need to get out of their homes? There were loudspeakers and some people were visited by people from the army. First of all, they said to sort of get out of your house and go further up the road. And a neighbour and I duly did that and we were standing around for a bit and decided to go back home again because we weren't doing anything useful and it looked as if the fire was being contained. But the fire service was worried that perhaps there would be smouldering fires that could break out again, that even if they looked as if they'd been put out, there was a risk. And so they did tell people to leave their homes and people packed up things, including many people, of course, with their cats and dogs and pets. I must ask Um, you about the pets in just a moment. But I suppose that what we need to get established first and foremost is how are Israeli media treating this? Because over here, I've read conflicting reports that suggest that they are arson attacks, as I know that other people in the UK Jewish community have read this as well. Others are saying it wasn't, that it was due to heat and stuff like that, which I find very hard to believe at this time of year. So do we know what started the fires? Well, some of them were arson attacks. I mean, we know that because people have admitted it or have been caught in the act. So some of them were. It's quite possible some of them weren't, were due to negligence or just accidents. And because of the the high wind and the ground being so dry, that something that wouldn't have broken out into a fire if we'd had some rain uh, was suddenly very dangerous. So there's some of each. But one of the casualties of the fire is that you don't get any information because the electricity was turned off. My neighbour, we were outside, as I mentioned, when we went back into our our flats, we found out there was no electricity. So there's no television, there's no internet. When you have the electricity, it's frightening how, that is frightening, how dependent we are on electricity. Yeah, well, I'm not surprised. It sounds absolutely shocking. And as you say, quite terrifying in the sense that you don't know how long you're going to be without it and you suddenly realize how dependent you are on it well you obviously are you're back in the middle ages you know well i assume you obviously are back on electricity to some degree because that's obviously how we are communicating now people may be able to hear that it's over a skype line and therefore that requires the internet the internet obviously requires electricity so i assume that your flat has now at least got electricity again Are, are others slowly but surely coming back on or we don't know Well, the electricity came back on the following day, on Friday, happily before Shabbat. 
Um, I've only had my computer back today because the cables were damaged by the fire. Oh, wow. So it's only today, that's nearly a week, that I've had anything with the internet or television. We mentioned it just before. Tell us a little bit about the pets, because obviously oh. if people flee, then unfortunately a lot of the time we see situations where pets do get left behind. Now, I happen to know for a fact that you've got pets. Were you encouraged to leave your cats behind or, or were you allowed to go back for them? I know that you said you went back after a few hours, but what were the authorities saying? Oh, I don't think they were mentioning pets specifically. And, you know, if you ask a question, it's trafe. So you don't really ask for permission to do things necessarily. I have some cats in the house and I left them there. I didn't think our building was particularly at risk. And I thought they would have been more at risk if they'd have been outside. So I left a window open, but I left the cats inside. And I do look after some street cats and also a neighbor's cats. And the only cat I took with me was a little kitten because I could put that easily into a cat carrier and I had to give it medication every couple of hours. So I took that kitten with me. Goodness me. I'm just thinking it now, how surreal it must have been and how everyone, I suppose, just takes for granted that day to day will carry on until something like this comes along to make you really appreciate what you have got. (laughs) What's the rescue effort like over there? Because there are obviously some, as you mentioned before, properties that are more severely damaged than luckily your one has got away with. And yes. what, what's the government doing or rescue organisations doing in a bid to try and make sure that people do have homes to go to or at least temporary ones to go to and that they've got everything that they need? There was There is a place in Central Carmel where people went, I think in the Cinematech, but mostly people went to friends and family. I had a mobile phone, which I couldn't charge because, of course, when the electricity goes, your phone goes as well. And I was terrified that I would be left without that. But while I still had the mobile and it could still take messages, I was inundated with offers from people all over the country saying, come and stay with us. And I think everybody was. I think most people had offers to come and stay for a few days or a few weeks or as long as it took. I think people have been very helpful to one another. You know, there's one thing as well that strikes me from all of this is whenever there's a disaster anywhere around the world, Israel is normally one of the first countries to get involved, if not to actually be on the scene and helping. Did you notice any rescue efforts from other countries? Because we've had reports over here as well that some of the UK Jewish charities have tried to raise money for people affected by the fires in Haifa. Have you heard about any efforts from other countries? I think there have been. I think we've had planes that come over and fight the fires from the air. And I think they've come even from Turkey, which is a surprise, I think, from Greece. So various different countries have helped. Yes, that's been one of the upsides of it. Even the Palestinian Authority has been helpful to some degree here. And, of course, many of the firemen that we see, Haifa is a very mixed town, and some of the firemen will be Jewish, some will be Arab, you know, all fighting the fires together. So hopefully there has been some positive to come out of it. Just finally, could you maybe tell us how you envisage Haifa moving on from this? Because hopefully most of, if not all of the fires are out by now. And even if they aren't, they soon will be. How do you see Haifa getting on with everyday life now? Is there a chance that everything that was damaged would just be rebuilt and things go back to normal? I think nature does renew itself. And when we had a fire in the Carmel Forest a few years ago, And now if you walk through, you can't really see there was a fire. And that that was horrendous. I saw that from my window at the time. 
So I think, as with the hurricane in England, you know, trees can be lost, but they can be replanted. And I think people will make every effort to renew that. It's much more difficult when people have lost everything. They've lost their possessions and mementos and photographs and parts of their lives. That's much more difficult to replace. But I think there's a determination here to, to get, get through it and, and carry on as normal and build and replant and everything. I'm sure we will. Expat Rona Hart talking to me about what life is like in her hometown of Haifa following the fires there over the past week. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Adam will be joined by actor and photographer Tony Honigberg and newcomer Daniel Musikant. They'll be discussing the practice of kosher slaughter. Plus, Diana Toman will be speaking to Rebecca Wolf, the winner of this year's Jewish News and Mitzvah Day Community Hero Award. But first, you'd be forgiven for thinking that Britain in 2016 meant that both women and men were treated as equals. After all, we have a female Prime Minister and a female Chancellor of Germany, but authors Sue Uniman and Catherine Jacob have written a book entitled The Glass Wall, Success Strategies for Women at Work and Businesses that Mean Business. Entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton has been speaking to Sue to find out why they felt the need to write the book. Kate started by asking Sue where the expression glass wall comes from. The glass wall, we coined the term because we believe that even though there is apparently a level playing field, if you look at the numbers of women in senior management, in government, in law, in financial services companies, not just in the UK, but around the world, there are still very few, we're nowhere near the proportion of the population that we could be in terms of those very senior jobs. When you say you... You wrote this book with Catherine Jacob. Yes, my co-author Catherine Jacob, who's CEO of Pearl and Dean. And we set out to work out what the problems were that were stopping women from taking those, those top jobs. Because there is so much data out there that says that companies that have more diverse boards and gender is often a very great signal of diversity, make better decisions and are more profitable. So can I throw one number at you? Grant Thornton came out with some research earlier this year that said that listed boards in the UK, the US and India, the difference in profitability between those that have women on them and those that are just men only is $655 billion. So that's a big number. So there's all sorts of reasons why there should be more women at the top. But if you look at the Lord Davis report from this time last year, in the FTSE 100 boards, the proportion of executive women directors on those boards, so not talking about the NEDs now, but the women actually working through the pipelines of those companies, is just 9.6%. But going back to where a lot of people will be thinking, it takes a huge amount of time to be, and it's not a job that you go into, if you're chief executive, senior sure. management. It takes time, it takes thought. You have to be really in the mind. You need to be able to take it home with you. And if women want to have kids and they want to spend time with them and they take gulps and bites out of their career to spend with their family, it's very difficult then either to slide back in, even if they wanted to, yeah. but to slide back in and and then rise quickly when people who have been there are inevitably 
going to know more? What we need is we need the best people running the companies. I don't believe, perhaps you do, I don't believe that if the population of the country is 50% women, that there are many, many more women who would be perfectly capable and perfectly good at running companies and being in senior management. Now, sure, maybe lots of them don't want to. Maybe many of them have taken a different um, life path and decided to bring up children instead. That's all great. That's all perfectly fine. But we're talking about what population of 60, 60 million adults, 30 million women, and there are more men named Dave running FTSE 100 companies than there are women running FTSE 100 companies. The statistics just don't work. And sorry, I didn't explain why we said the glass wall rather than the glass ceiling. The glass wall is the divide that comes down because some businesses aren't taking account of the different needs of women. And often women, either because they're caring for children or it could be that they're caring for elderly parents or caring for even the puppy and they're juggling that with their full-time job as well, that they may have different requirements and different needs. So sometimes the glass wall is that meeting that gets put in the diary at 8am on a Monday morning when you've got the school run to do. And you don't want to say, I'm not going to go and do that meeting because of the school run, but probably most of the other people in the meeting wouldn't have the question. Somebody else would be taking over the score and someone else would be taking care of it. So you're having to juggle that. That is the glass wall. Sometimes the glass wall comes down in conversations that you get left out of because they haven't happened when they were supposed to, when they when they were scheduled into the diary. Sometimes the glass wall is something that women bring down in front of themselves because the tone of the macho banter in the meeting just becomes something that you don't want to get involved in. None of those things are good reasons why women shouldn't be in senior management positions. In your experience, have you come across some businesses or careers that are worse, if you like, for women and some that are better? I think it depends on culture. Um, And I think sometimes the culture is about the company, sometimes the culture is about the industry. I think that any business now would look at the kinds of profitability stats and and there's many great surveys out there and say, we really do need some more women in management and there's a lot of pressure on it. I think some businesses are finding it easier to keep their talented women than others. And what we've put in the book is advice for business as well as advice for the women making their way up to the top. And if you were going to advise daughters, people listening may have daughters, Mm. granddaughters, they may themselves be about to start on the career ladder. Mm. What sort of advice would would you give them? How do you even go about making sure, you know, I want to make it to the top, but actually I do want to have a family. Sure. And loads of women have made it to the top. In fact, both Catherine and I have got amazing families. And of course, many women do juggle that. And I think often the pinch point is just a couple of years and a couple of years out of a career if you're talking about a long-term career, that's just something that you can easily make up for and get over. I don't want to say it's easy, actually. I want to say that it takes lots and lots and lots of very hard work. But with the right support, of course, it can be done. I think advice for any woman in the workplace is that you have to up your level of resilience. That often those interviews that we've done and we talked to over 100 people for this book both men and women inside and outside the country uh, inside and outside the UK but also we had quant research in the UK US and Russia and resilience comes out in terms of often women for example will ask for a pay rise and ask for a promotion as frequently as men do 
but they deal with the answer differently. So if a man comes into his boss's office and asks for a promotion or a pay rise and gets the answer, well, not now, John, because of these reasons and these reasons and these reasons, John will go out of that office thinking, good, I've put my put my cards on the chief executive's table. I'll go back in maybe three weeks time and see what he's done about my promotion. Whereas a woman in the same circumstances may well hear exactly the same things, but come out of the office going, yeah, no, he's right. I, sh- I shouldn't have asked for that promotion. Maybe, maybe I'll go back in a year or two. And that's the kind of thing that we need to shake ourselves out of. But if it's a natural way of being, mm. that's a very hard thing to, to change. Well, it's like saying, well, you know, a lot of women are not going to be as strong as men. They're not physically, I'm talking about, you know, to lift something or they're not as tall. They can't reach something or, you know, if that is just a genetic thing almost or you think that's more of societal. I think it's more societal. And our experience is, is that you don't have to be inauthentic. You don't have to radically change yourself. But we all have lots of different versions of ourselves anyway. Most of us are not the same with our best friend from school as we are with another mum from the school that's a different relationship we're not the same with a work colleague as we are with our mum it's just about flexibility and upping one or another version of yourself in order to get the outcome that you wish to achieve and your book is lots of sort of self-help type of well self stories stories yeah is there anything you particularly relate to Goodness, there's lots of stories in the book that I relate to and some of which are really moving. I mean, one in particular struck a chord with me, which was about a woman who I I very much admire, actually. And she wanted to make some change happen in her organisation. And rather than look at incremental changes and small incremental changes, she made a very big dramatic change instead, which did shock everybody but got them there so much faster that even when they went back from it a little bit, it meant that they'd made real progress. And she told me her story. I I really admire her, actually. But there are lots of differences. There's 41 strategies and stories in the book, so hopefully there's something for everyone to relate to. Author Sue Uniman talking to Kate Fulton there about why she and her co-author Catherine Jacob wrote their book The Glass Wall, Success Strategies for Women at Work and Business Who Mean Business. To obtain your copy, you can simply search for it in your preferred search engine and it's bound to come up. In just a moment will be this week's schmooze. Don't forget, we live stream the schmooze on our Facebook page. Now, normally I tell you that it's every Thursday evening from 7pm Greenwich Mean Time. But next week, it will be on Wednesday, the 7th of December from 7pm. That all-important address is coming up, but it means that you can comment along as the discussion unfolds. And of course, we'll try and read those comments out as and when we get them. It's just another way you can share your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash jewishviews or on Twitter. We are at jewishviewsuk. Now, you may recall that in recent weeks, the Jewish News and Mitzvah Day have been on the lookout for this year's worthy recipient of the Community Hero Award. Well, the winner was Rebecca Wolfe, who was inspired to carry on the fundraising efforts of her late brother, Simon Cooper, who lost his battle with cancer earlier this year. 
Community reporter Diana Toman has been speaking to Rebecca to find out more about the work she's been doing. Diana started by asking Rebecca to tell us a bit more about Simon. Simon was my brother. He was 33 when he passed away in July. He was an inspiration to everyone he met, I would say. He he caused quite an impact to everybody. He was memorable. He often was known by people. He wouldn't have a clue who they were, but he'd be stopped in the street. Hello, Simon. And who was that? Oh, I don't know. But that that was the kind of person he was. He just, everyone knew him. He was an incredibly talented musician. What did he play? He, well, he played a variety of instruments, but his main instrument was the drums. And I think many people would say he was probably by far the best drummer they had ever been privileged to listen to. But what was he suffering from? He suffered from cystic fibrosis and that was diagnosed at birth. Right. He also suffered from diabetes. He, as a consequence to the cystic fibrosis, had a liver transplant 17 years ago and a lung transplant four years ago. And then in January this year, he was diagnosed with cancer. So quite a lot of battles he had to face all throughout his life. And I think for many people, that would stop them from maybe fulfilling their dreams and doing the things they'd like to do. But for him, it was almost the motivation and anything he wanted to do, anything he set his mind to, he would do it. However ridiculous it might seem, however many people told him, no, you can't do that he would do it and his his willpower was quite incredible it sounds like you now tell me about the award which you've recently been given and you were all up there on the stage weren't you we were yes tell us about where were you and when was it the award was given to us at jw3 last sunday and it was Well, we were lucky enough to be nominated by my cousin who came to our fundraising event. And that's kind of what spurred it all on. The fundraising event was amazing. And it was something that Simon and I started back in January, a couple of weeks after he was diagnosed with cancer. Raising money for? Raising money for, initially it was for cystic fibrosis and for Macmillan. And then... After he ended up staying in the North London Hospice and the care that he was given there was just amazing, we decided that we wanted to add them to the the beneficiaries, beneficiaries list. So yes. Yes, so, yes, so we ended up having three charities that we were so raising So this money award for. at JW3, how did you find out about it? Your relative nominated you for it and then you were told about it and, and given advance warning, as it were? Yes, so we were told that we had Did, been... did Simon know? He didn't no, know. No, no. He didn't. We were nominated after the event, which oh, right. happened in October. I see. So, no, he didn't know, but, yes, I was told about it a few weeks ago now, I think, and then I saw it in the Jewish News, the article, and then we went to the JW3 event on Sunday, not knowing who the winners were. And oh, you didn't know. That's when we found out. Exciting. So. Now, the fundraising that you were doing before, did you raise a reasonable amount of money, more than you expected? We did, yes. We initially are target was £10,000, which at the time a lot of people said, 
you're not going to raise that much money. Are you sure you can do it? Are you sure you're not going to end up losing money? But like I said, what Simon set his mind to, right. Simon achieved yes. and this time by far exceeded it. And we actually raised just over £20,000. Did you really? So split it was between worth it. those three. Yes, we split it between the three. Three charities. This is an enormous feather in your cap, if I can put it like that. How are you going to carry on, if if at all? Were you going to do any more fundraising? Yes, we definitely are. Simon was very charitable. He loved raising money for charity and he loved raising awareness for his charities as well. And that was actually almost as important to him as the money itself. So we, early next year, are going to be starting a trust in Simon's name, in his memory, Hopefully we will do lots of different fundraising events all throughout the years. Simon was known for being different, doing lots of different things, a bit quirky. So we intend to do lots of different types of fundraising events to try and encourage all different kinds of people to to come and join. And we will be aiming to raise money for all different causes that were close to Simon's heart. And we've actually already started the process of the, the next thing we're raising money for. We are releasing a single, which actually is available now to download on iTunes, which is called Light a Candle for Hanukkah. And it's by the Friday Night Rock Service, which was another of Simon's creations. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, and we, it's actually based on the tune and the lyrics by Debbie Friedman, who was a American singer-songwriter. Indeed. The Debbie Friedman Trust have very kindly agreed that we can take 50% of all the takings and donate that straight to the North London Hospice. That's fantastic. So. Thank you very much, Rebecca. That's been inspiring, really inspiring. Thank you. Thank you. The winner of this year's Community Hero Award, Rebecca Wolf, talking to Diana Toman there about the incredible fundraising work that she and her late brother have achieved. Remember, the single is called Light a Candle for Hanukkah. It's by Friday Night Rock Service and is available now on iTunes. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Adam Bradley and me today is actor and photographer Tony Honigberg and newcomer Daniel Musicant. The subject today is based on what we heard in the news with Viv earlier on. A kosher abattoir in East London has been targeted by a militant vegan protest group. The activists daubed walls with Jewish symbols and the words kosher holocaust. Now, although we don't condone such behaviour, nor will we be discussing such a specific case, we thought that we should have the conversation about the practice of kosher slaughter and whether or not such antiquated methods have a place in modern society. Daniel, let's start with you. Do you think that there is scope to find a modern alternative to kosher slaughter? I think... There is actually nothing wrong with sort of kosher slaughter because you know one of the main reasons behind it is actually to minimise the actual pain and suffering to the animals. That's what they say, and that's what I think a lot of people might believe in. What about uh, you, Tony? Well, I think it's been proven time and time again that it's a humane way of killing the animal. Is they, there? I'm sorry to interrupt you, but is there such a thing as a humane way of killing? Well, the animal? A, a way without causing the animal pain. I mean, it says it says in the Torah, doesn't it, that we mustn't cause our 
our animals any pain. We only, we don't. That's why we don't go out and kill wild animals. We have to kill only domestic animals because we we treated them nicely and we we kill them in a way which is it humane? I don't know. Humane is yeah, probably the wrong word, that? isn't it? But how do we know that the animal has less suffering via? kosher slaughter because there have been reports lately that stunning is actually a more let's call it humane way of slaughtering but they miss stun so lots more times and than sometimes in kosher slaughtering they, they, they miss get that wrong and that's more painful. Painful. so for the whole idea of kosher slaughtering was really killed with one blow that's the idea i know when i'm speaking from experience from my wife's uncle lives in zimbabwe where clive's from and he's, he's a farmer, and he's t- he was telling us the last time he was over about the horrific kosher abattoir that he visited, and he said animals were not slaughtered properly, and there were animals running around that were half-slaughtered, and they were trying to catch them. And, uh, maybe this is a one-off incident. Maybe, maybe, that that maybe it's a no, as, as a matter of fact, let me tell you, I, I know a very famous Dayan who actually said to me once, the thing that he hated doing was going to a slaughterhouse because he could see the fear in the eyes of the animals as they were about to be slaughtered. They almost knew what was going to happen. Yes, exactly. And they feel great pain. I I suppose you can't tell the fear in the eyes, I mean, by looking at an animal, one would thought so. The same way, maybe, then you can't tell if the slaughter is, is less painful than not. I mean, they do tests, don't they? The vets have done tests on... Animals being slaughtered under cash rules. But I think you'll put a lot of trust in the shochet. Yeah, that's um, the point. Yeah, I think the the example I was giving, I don't think that's the norm. I think you're right that the. That sounds like an abattoir that was losing its way somewhat, you know. I think you've, yeah, you're, yeah, that's what we sort of used to buying kosher meat, but you don't, I don't really think about the whole process when you go to a kosher butcher, but in the back of your mind, you know that they've hopefully had minimal suffering, and that's the whole point of kosher. I, I guess even with stunning, the animal's going to suffer. Yeah, because it may not be instantaneous. Yeah, mm. we don't know how instantaneous that stunning is. But when is. they're stunned, apparently, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm absolutely ignorant about it, but I have read that when animals are stunned, they do not feel as much pain as when they are slaughtered by a shohet. Well, it depends how they're stunned, I guess. They used to stun them with a bolt of some sort, didn't they, which must can't be instant, I wouldn't have thought. I think they now stun them with electric shock. You see, the latest news that's come out about fish makes one think a great deal because they've discovered that fish can think and have feelings and even have conversations with each other. Yes, I read that. And this could be exactly the same thing with animals. They reckon the fish don't feel pain, do they, because they're cold-blooded Well, apparently this is not... Yes, that's that's what people have always thought. But apparently they now believe that fish do feel feel pain. pain. Yes. And when you go fishing and catch a fish with a hook, it's very, very painful for the poor fish. Is there a humane way of killing a fish? <laughs> well, they, net, well, they do it, net them, don't they? But it, then, then, then the fish suffocates. So, yeah. is that humane? I don't know. None of it is. The, no. the, the fact is. So, so should we then all go over to be vegans and vegetarians? Well, this is what they were saying in the in in the protest. And, and this week, not using five pound notes well, yeah, because they contain animal fats. But then, yes. who, who eats five pound notes? Well, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Where do you, where do you draw the line? That's uh, the other issue. I don't know. It's the thing one's got to think about, you know. I mean, just think. I don't mean this facetiously. But think how you might feel as an animal who'd been standing with a lot of other animals 
waiting for possibly an hour. Of course, of course, we don't know how the what the animals are thinking because no nobody knows what the cow in the field is thinking with these other cows or where the human. You know exactly. You can have a conversation with you. you know exactly how a human feels, but you don't really know how an animal feels because we're but not that animal, are we? However facetious yeah. this may sound, if fish can think and worry about things, well, I'm sure cows can as well. I'm sure. I think sometimes what they found is true. We don't know, do we? But I've seen. But I've been into the Far East, and you can actually see the fear in some animals who are in the market, and you sort of choose the animal you want, and you can you can really feel very Mm. sorry for the animal because they know exactly what's going to happen. I I wonder if they they come into a slaughterhouse where they know what's going to happen, or whether. Or maybe they just get vibes off of other animals, or maybe even vibes off the people that it's. I mean, animals. Situation. Animals live entirely on instincts. So <laughs> if their instincts are that in tune, <laughs> you'd think they go into a slaughterhouse. They they probably they pick up on something. Whether yeah. they not, well, it's probably pick, don't maybe know picking what's up on the human beings that are in there. Yeah. Well, as I've just said, I said earlier, uh, Diane told me that he hated going to the to the slaughterhouse because you could see the fear in the animal's eyes. He wasn't actually a shocket then, was he, the Diane? No, he he wasn't, but he used to go. Well, maybe he was that as well. I mean, my grandfather was a rabbi, and when I was a little boy 150 years ago, (laughs) I used to watch my grandfather kill chickens. Yes. And the amazing thing, and it's never gone out of my head, I can see it now, were chickens running around without their heads on. And I used to worry terribly that they were... But they were so worried running around because they, what's happened to my, my head? head. <laughs> I know, I don't mean, I don't mean that. No, no, I understand that, yeah. But look, we're not going to stop Jews eating meat, are we? It's not, just not gonna well, I'm not I going to happen. Well, I'm not going to stop eating meat. Our staple diet is chicken, chicken soup. So well, we are carnivores, aren't we? We have to accept that if, we, if we're going to carry on eating meat, we've got to kill animals. Mm. And just so, do it in the most humane way possible. Absolutely. So, so yeah. would you accept, let, let, let me ask the question then, as... as Jewish people surrounded here, would you accept if they changed the law and said we must stun the animal first and then we can kill it in the way of Shekita? If they uh, found that that was it wouldn't definitely worry me. the it most worry humane me. way of doing fine. it, yeah. then surely we, we, it's incumbent upon us yeah. to take that I one. would have thought so. Because, I mean, the Torah is quite, so why quite are, clear why are about not... how we treat animals. I mean, we give our animals... More respect, more respect they rest on Shabbos you give them somewhere to sleep more comfortable than you if that's all you get you know the whole of the Torah is so goes into so much detail about how we have to be humane it's almost a paradox that's exactly what I was saying about killing of the animals it it is humane according to the Torah yes when the Torah was written or inspired by the Almighty. They had no other way of killing They it. had no other way of killing But mm. if, if they had known about stunning then, maybe they would have said, yes, let's stun yes. the animal first. Yeah, they may well have done. I'd, I'd be happy with that. But to change that, you know, what sort of steps would people need to take to actually make that a reality? It's probably easier said than done. Mm. You see, if we were Catholics, if the Pope said... This is now all right, and you it must would be all right. It would be all right. Yeah. And yeah. surely there must be a committee of rabbis, if you like, the chief rabbis of around the world, get together and say there is a, a more humane way of killing animals. I mean, I know that sounds. It's a, it's, yeah, it's a bit off the wall, isn't it? A bit it? off you the know, wall, yeah. You know, but... four Jews and seven opinions, isn't it? You know? <laughs> <laughs> but it could, yeah. I, I, I would be happy with that if if that's what they deemed to be okay. That'd be fine by me. Look, the Torah does quite clearly forbid any cruelty to anything that benefits humans. 
And it quite clearly says killing of animals. animals benefit humans, even to the extent of medical testing. Yes. It's quite clear that if it's for the benefit of humans, it's allowed. So really, if the Torah is telling us this, then, then surely... Then there are other ways, but nobody, no river upon him are willing to take the risk and, and stand up and be counted. Well, the ones I've spoken to won't stand up and be counted. I've spoken to the well, people I, about it, this. Exactly the same. I've, I've mm. discussed this, strangely enough, with an, a number of rabbis. And as I've said already, that this Dayan always says that it is painful, but there is no other way of doing it, and it is for the benefit of human beings. They're not and, looking for any other way of doing it, though, are they? Well, no, they're That's not. That's the problem. If they looked, maybe there is another way of doing it. Well, this, this is the whole point. Is but, there? Because but, as we've already said, no rabbi will, would agree to it, no. would they? But have the laws of Shechita changed in the last... 50 or 100 years no, probably not not at all no. not at all but I think there is time for change do the do the reform and liberal rabbis do they do they have kosher food I guess I don't know I don't know I'd I imagine it, it varies from one to the other really yeah. what, what they do but I would imagine those that do they have to keep to the same requirements you know and I would imagine they they whether they keep kosher or not and this discussion sort of is going a bit beyond being kosher they still, I would imagine, are very strong advocates of treating animals with respect and with humanity. Yeah, definitely. And so whether they keep kosher or not, kind of not, not the point. It's more a case of attitude to animals. And if we want to have the right attitude, we've got to make sure we kill them in the right way. Isn't there different types of kosher? I'm not sure. Like you know, glut kosher, I don't know exactly what that, what the difference is. Does that mean the well, animals? Glut kosher is where they inspect the lungs for scarring. So if any lung has any scarring yeah, on it, blemishing, any, yeah. any blemishes, then the, the people that keep glat kosher won't eat that part, that meat. But right. I think okay. the, the kadassia, the regular kadassia is the same. I was, I was once told by a shochet that it's so quick when they slaughter them across, cut them across yeah. the neck, that in fact they're not even aware of it. But You know from yourself, if you get a paper cut, you don't feel it immediately. <laughs> Or you cut yourself with a razor, you don't feel it immediately. It's no, that's so sharp, true. so... That's sharp, yes. You will feel it afterwards. But it's the, the answer, perhaps, is quite a simple one, that instead of keeping all these animals waiting to be slaughtered, they've got to find a way of killing the animal so quickly that he isn't aware, he or she isn't mm. aware before they're killed, that they're going to be killed. Do you see but the other, mean? But the other, the animals that are queuing up behind don't see the other animal being killed. They keep, in, in Shakita, yeah, they keep a, that separate. But there is a feeling of fear. I, I don't want to sound ridiculous, but... A feeling of fear in the air, maybe. A fear in the yeah. air, the waiting, yes. The waiting the around beforehand. Yeah. Yes. If there's a well, nice way of... I mean, if you could think of it in human terms, we would, if there were lots of us all queuing up and not knowing what's going to happen, we'd be very, very oh, worried. Of course we would. Yes. Maybe you could keep the, the animals in the be field before, you know, and then just pull them in one by one. That might be the way. Instead of having them queue up. Hmm. That might be the way. Yeah. Because it does seem to me that there is some argument in it. I'm guessing they're not kosher before they're slaughtered. Because, no. let's face it, Jews won't queue, will they? <laughs> <laughs> not anymore. Right. But they're not Jewish animals. No. No. So no. therefore, They're not they're Jewish animals had... until they've been slaughtered. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yes, exactly. They've been slaughtered in a Jewish way, but they're not Jews, if you see what I mean. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't no, want I, to sound... A, cow, a cow's a cow. I'm being flippant, yeah. really. <laughs> but I've, I've always been a believer that... And this may sound a bit maybe pompous but i've always been a strong believer that humans are the superior race on earth and i don't mean superior in anything other than 
The food chain, maybe. <laughs> the, food the food chain. chain but down. also, as Jews, and I'm a believer, and I, you know, I'm sold on it, that God created us. God created the world for us. Therefore, animals, plants, everything, everything was created for, us, for, the human for us. Yeah. So why would there be a problem in the slaughter itself? The fact that we can kill animals for food, the fact that we can kill animals for medical testing, doesn't that tell us something? Were we also that we are top of the food chain? That really, all right. But if we are so, if we are so superior, which I, I actually agree with you about, then why is it that we go around some of us and throughout history, it and it could well happen again, God forbid, but that we are quite happy to kill other human beings. Well, that could... Meg that megalomania. Could, I think that's probably a dictatorship. Yeah, yeah, but it could also... It's been related that people that are cruel and, and torture animals... Are cruel and torture progress humans. and torture humans. Mm. Well, there, there I'm afraid we have to end the discussion because our time is up. But thank you all very much indeed. My thanks to our guests, actor and photographer Tony Honigberg and newcomer Daniel Musicant. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to Facebook dot com slash Jewish Views or on Twitter we are at Jewish Views UK. Time now for our rabbinic thought for the week, and this time it comes from Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North London Masorti Synagogue. When Isaac grew old, his eyesight failed, but the Torah does not say that he became blind. It says Vatichena Enav Meroot. His eyes were dim from seeing. So naturally the rabbis who are curious about every syllable and letter in the Torah ask, from seeing what did his eyes become dim? And they give a rich and often moving range of answers in the Midrash. The one that speaks to me takes us back to the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, the moment when he lay on his back on the altar, looking up and seeing his father drawing the knife before the angel intervened. And in the Midrash, those angels in heaven shed tears. They weep at the fate of father and son, and those tears fall into Isaac's open eyes as he stares upwards, and after then his sight is never the same again. It's like Milton, who was blind, talking about those so thick a drop serene hath quenched their sight. We would call this now post-traumatic stress disorder, a huge and shattering event in a life, after which the world is never the same, one's perspective has changed, one is always on uncertain territory. Isaac undergoes such a trauma, and his fate should take us to think about all those who since and today have experienced similar. Thank you to Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North London Mazorti Synagogue for our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Rona Hart, Sue Uniman, Rebecca Wolf. Thanks also to the Schmooze team, Tony Honigberg and Daniel Musicant. And of course, you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg.
You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk, and you can listen to all previous editions by searching for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.